Dedication and Leadership, Chapter 8, Campaigns, Criticisms, and Cadres. The party lives by its campaigns. This is one of its slogans. And unlike some others, it has a lot of truth in it. The majority of recruits to the party, as noted earlier, come in through the campaigns which the party organizes. Campaigning keeps the party members active the whole of the time. This is a deliberate policy. A lot of thought has to be given to ensure that one campaign follows another almost nonstop. Communists, if they are worthy of the name at all, are always active. Activity in itself serves an important purpose, but it has to be made as meaningful as possible so that more and more non-communists may be drawn into association with the Communist Party. For many people who are not communists, activity is almost an end in itself. Years ago, I knew a man who devoted every moment of his spare time, seven days a week, 365 days a year, to raising and racing homing pigeons. Most of us know others who give the whole of their leisure to cultivating orchids or, maybe, to playing bridge, bringing to these as serious an approach as any man ever brought to a cause that might change the world. Some spend their time organizing other people. In urging their members to be active, therefore, communists are not going against the grain. They are using something which has its own appeal. People once they are suitably activized, gain satisfaction from being active. If this can be made meaningful, then they will get even greater satisfaction, for they will feel that they are engaged in something virtuous. The communists recognize this. To an exceptional extent, they succeed in keeping their people almost constantly in action and in making members' activity relevant to the needs or desires of the people they are seeking to influence and activize. This, then, is their approach to the technique of campaigning. Collectively, the leaders, at all levels, must find issues upon which to campaign which will relate activity to the real needs of the people. Ideally, these issues should be linked to the people's deepest desires, their most pressing needs. Quite frequently, communist campaigns have on the face of it little to do with the long-term aims of communism, but they have a great deal to do with keeping party members in action, attracting others to the movement and creating the image of a party which alone concerns itself with the lives and problems of ordinary folk. Much of Mao Zedong's success, particularly during the guerrilla phase of his fight, depended upon his party's ability to discover the needs of the people and to come before them as their champions. In one of his essays, he described this approach as from the people to the people. By this, he means that the party should send its members out amongst the people, try to discover what they want most and what are the questions which are troubling their minds and what are the things which are nearest to their hearts. Then they should report back to their party, cell, or group what they have discovered. This should then be discussed, and the means be found by which it can be used for the communist cause. The party then adapts its campaigns to the things the people really want. You take the raw material of campaigning from the people, give it a communist content, then give it back to them again. Since, as Mao states, it originated with them, 
they will naturally respond to it. The communists say that their aim is a communist world. That, as I have previously emphasized, means every country in the world. This aim is kept firmly in the communist's mind the whole of the time. He is made to feel that whatever he is doing is related to that ultimate aim. He must never lose sight of this, or the campaigns may come to be an end in themselves. Or he may get so caught up in campaigning for reforms that he comes in time to believe that the existing society is capable of being reformed, whereas as a Marxist, he should believe that it must be swept away as a necessary precondition for the building of his communist world, that is, revolution. Nonetheless, you cannot campaign exclusively and continuously for a communist world. That is a long-term objective, since by its very nature it is incapable of immediate achievement, people will before long grow weary of campaigning for it if they have no other objectives towards which to work. Books by Lenin and Stalin read like military textbooks. The terminology is that of the military academic. Communists think in terms of strategy and tactics. They think like so many army officers. And any military man should know that the art of campaigning is to be able to maintain the morale of your troops, come what may. He knows that a big defeat may lead to his men's becoming demoralized, but that there are ways of avoiding this. He knows, or should do, that you can take a big defeat and still maintain morale if you throw your troops quickly into action again in some sector of the front where they can get a quick victory no matter how small. Leave them inactive, and before long they are demoralized. So, for this reason, you need your long-term objectives, but you need intermediate and short-term objectives as well. The long-term objectives of a communist world may not be achieved for some time, although communists believe it will be achieved in our lifetime. But communist party members are also given goals which are capable of realization here and now. Pie in the sky may have its own place, but men need something to keep them going in the meantime. The communist's intermediate goal is to win his own country for communism. It is the National Party's task to devise ways and means of achieving this and to involve all of its members in the job. Each communist is, therefore, at one and the same time working for a communist world and working to make his own particular country communist as a contribution to the long-term goal. It is necessary here, I suppose, to mention that there is a certain similarity in this between the communist and the Christian who wishes to win the world for Christ, his long-term aim, and to accomplish the Christianization of the society in which he lives, which might be described as the intermediate one. But there must also be the short-term immediate objectives. Campaigning for these is like the little skirmishes into which the wise officer sends his men, knowing in advance that they stand a good chance of getting a small victory. This is of great psychological importance in constantly keeping morale at the highest pitch. Campaigning for well-chosen immediate objectives helps to ensure that members do not lose heart. It keeps them continuously working for the cause and therefore tied to it. A sudden cessation of activity due to sickness or some other contingency has been the downfall of many a communist. It has led to his attitude towards communism cooling off and to his subsequent defection. The immediate objective may be almost anything which links people to the cause, weakens the position of the ruling class, 
and the opponents of communism or advances the cause of communism. If the members can see results from time to time as communists normally do, then they feel that all the fighting and campaigning is worthwhile and they get the very human satisfaction of seeing something attempted, something done. One obvious immediate objective is the making of communist converts. This is something which is in the mind of the communist all the time. He is out to make converts wherever and whenever he can. Often the methods of individual members have been crude. They have proselytized so blatantly that they have built up a very natural and understandable resistance to their efforts. This is not particular to communists. There have been many others who have fallen into the same trap. Communists learn from their mistakes. And so their conversion methods have tended to become more subtle as the years have gone on. But this does not mean that their members have become less conversion-minded. Any communist who is worth his salt moving into association with a new group of people will almost instinctively look around to see who are the probables, the ones who may most easily and usefully be brought into the party. Having selected those, he will try to devise ways and means of bringing about their conversion. I did this myself years ago when I was a communist. Some of my converts have by now left the party. Some are today working against communism. But there are still many who are totally dedicated to the cause. Whilst each individual communist is expected to be on the lookout for converts the whole of the time, working patiently upon his workmates, friends, and family, it is also recognized that the party, by means of its propaganda, has the responsibility of trying to convert public opinion, to so change the climate of opinion that conversions will be brought about more easily. What is of immediate interest to us is that the party does succeed in creating in its members a certain attitude of mind. This is one which leads to the believing that they have got the best things on earth. That... Since this is so, they have a right and responsibility to share it with others. By bringing converts into the party, they are helping to hasten the day when the party's intermediate aim and, in due course, its long-term aim, too, will have been achieved. The campaigns for short-term objectives are sometimes and undeniably in the interests of the common people, provided that we can forget the communists' ulterior motive a communist rejoices when he learns of some unnecessary hardship which people are enduring and around which the party can conduct an agitation. A quick and relatively easy success will improve the party's image and will mean more new readers of the communist press, possibly so many converts to the party as well. A communist must keep close to the people if he is to make his full contribution to the life of the party. We are the fish, the people are the stream, said Mao Zedong. By this he meant that communists are so close to the people that they can sense every new current and act accordingly. It may be that parents of young children in a particular neighborhood are with good cause worried by the fact that a road hitherto unguarded as relatively safe for their children to cross has now become dangerous. Or it may be that there is an inadequate transport service which makes it difficult for housewives to get to the shops or for workers to get to the station from which they commute. Whatever the issue may be, 
provided that it does not in some way conflict with the broader aims and intentions of the party. The local branch may, once it has become aware of it, be expected to go into action. I recall how on one occasion, back in the communist days, I discovered that people living in a housing estate just on the outskirts of the town where I was working had to go some three quarters of a mile out of their way in order to get into the town. This was because their way was blocked by the main line highway, which ran past the estate. I at once started a campaign for the construction of a football. Let me try that again. I at once started a campaign for the construction of a footbridge over the railway. It was a perfectly legitimate demand. Someone should have provided such a bridge years ago when the estate was first built. So far as I could recall, I got literally every resident to support the demand. A splendid agitation with petitions, meetings, and marches, and good press publicity was conducted in the name of the Communist Party. We did not get our footbridge but we got a unit of the Communist Party established on the estate, where previously I was the only member living there. And so, from our point of view, the campaign was a complete success, no matter what the Communists' motives may be. The fact is that quite frequently the issues about which they campaign and from which they get their converts are ones about which others could and should be concerned if Christians, Democrats, and others out of touch with the people, if Christians, Republicans, and others are out of touch with the people, if they do not see that they have a responsibility to concern themselves with the everyday needs of the common people, then they have no cause to complain when the communists come along, conduct a campaign of their own purposes, take the converts, and maybe the credit too. Members of Catholic organizations in particular are often frustrated by the fact that at study classes and formation courses they can discuss first principles and man's inalienable human rights for as long as they please and everyone in authority is perfectly happy about them. But once they try to translate into action what they have learned, trouble begins. The clergy are nervous of what they may do and watch with apprehension as young people set out to try to apply their Christianity to some segment of the paganized society in which they live. So long as the laity are talking, it often seems they are not likely to come to much harm. But once they go out and start trying to do things, red lights begin to shine in the distance. Sometimes they will organize ambitious and potentially useful local surveys. They go from house to house trying to discover what are the problems of young workers. It is all very purposeful. It has the appearance of being relevant. And then the gathering of information, the knocking of doors, the questioning and discussion comes to an end. The survey is completed. Some useful information has been collected. On paper, they know more than they did before about, say, the exploitation of apprentices as cheap labor in factories, the perpetuation of immoral initiation rituals and workshops employing large numbers of women, the number of youngsters who never go inside a church and who live lives devoid of any purpose or direction or who keep themselves going night and day with purple heart pills. And after that comes nothing except anticlimax, no form of remedial or preventive activity is embarked upon. The groundwork has been laid for a campaign, but there is no campaign. 
Someone in the background who is answerable to his superiors is nervous where it might lead. This, over and over again, has led to a falling away in membership and activity of such excellent organizations as, for example, the Young Christian Workers. This is not a problem for the communists. Once more, we are up against the paradox of those who are supposed to be the great champions of the human individual, showing less faith in people than do the communists, who are supposed to be the enemies of the human person. Party members are sent into action, and they go knowing that their superiors believe in them. The leaders send the rank and file into campaigns expecting they will make mistakes, which of course they do, but they teach them also to learn from those mistakes. The importance of the role of the laity, the need to consult them and to create personal and organizational links, which will enable them to communicate with the clergy and hierarchy, is beginning to be recognized as a result of the deliberations of the Second Vatican Council. But old attitudes and habits die hard, too frequently. When Christian laymen go into action, they do not feel that their leaders really believe in them. They do not feel that they have the confidence of the priest or bishop as they launch into some campaign. There are reasons for this. The problem is not a simple one, but it is very real, particularly to those who find themselves frustrated by what appears to be an almost total lack of trust. Laymen see priests or pastors make mistakes time after time and fervently hope that they are learning from them. They also want to be able to run the risk of making mistakes and to be given the chance of learning from those as well. I recall how on one occasion I had lectured a large gathering of Catholic trade unionists. The meeting had by any standard been a success, but later over a quiet meal together the priest told me, you have got my people all wanting to go into action, but my hair is going to stand on end. I do not know what they are going to say or do in the factory. I do not know what sort of heresy they are going to be guilty of. If you never say a word on behalf of your beliefs, if you never do anything, you are never going to be guilty of heresy. Except that the total failure to do anything about your beliefs seems to me almost to constitute a heresy in itself. Perhaps it is one of the greatest and most deadly heresies of our time. Of course, there is a calculated risk involved in sending a man into action. I have traveled the world too much not to know that priests going out to the missions are not infrequently involved in emotional crisis in the first months of their life abroad and are so quickly recalled to the home base. No one suggests that for this reason priests and missionaries should be withdrawn from the missions. When the same happens to lay missionaries who go off to distant places, there is still too often someone in authority who concludes that the modern lay mission effort is a menace, and who possibly bans henceforth all lay missionaries from his diocese. Yet human beings make mistakes, and anyone who is in charge of others has to learn to be prepared to see those mistakes made. Any communist will say, that the important thing is not that mistakes are made, but that people must be taught to learn from the mistakes. They have demonstrated 
that they can often learn more directly from their failures than from their successes. This is one reason why, although communists, from the top world leaders downwards, obviously make mistakes, it is exceptional for them to make the same mistake twice. And I do not mean that they are all banished or demoted like Mr. Molotov or Mr. Khrushchev. This, today, is reserved in the main for top leaders. Our Western statesmen make their mistakes too, but, one fears, they go on making the same ones for years on end. It is not by coincidence that this happens. We paper over our mistakes. This is a form of hypocrisy, of downright dishonesty, even though it is done very frequently in the name of courtesy. The communists, on the other hand, are ruthlessly critical of themselves and of each other. They do not have to bother about practicing Christian charity. Nevertheless, there is something to be learned from their self-critical approach. It is a wonderful antidote to complacency. They call it Bolshevik self-criticism, which sounds like a piece of communist jargon, but it is very meaningful to the communists. They would certainly claim that it is one of the healthiest and best institutions in the party's life. They run a campaign, engage in some form of activity, and this is followed by what is called the inquest. At the inquest, they are not concerned about being polite to each other. The sole concern is to discover what weaknesses were revealed by the campaign, what mistakes they made. So they do not tell each other how wonderful everyone was and how splendid the campaign was run. On the contrary, when they make a contribution to the discussion, you first criticize yourself, admitting that you were in such and such a way wrong. You make no reference to your successes. These can be taken for granted. Instead, you say, I slipped up completely on this one, on that, and on this other thing. Then, having criticized yourself honestly and frankly, you consider you are entitled to do the same with the other people present. You point out where they went wrong, too, and seek the views of others on the matter. Every mistake is brought to the surface. But more importantly, persistent probing reveals why the mistakes were made, how they might have been avoided, and how the lessons learned from these mistakes can be applied to specific forms of activity, which are already planned. Their language is perhaps more severe and sharp than that which the Christian may legitimately use. But the critical approach is a good one for any organization which takes its work as seriously as does the Communist Party. Any organization which considers itself to be or aspires to be an elite and which is anxious to be just as effective as possible. Certainly for the Communist purposes, they have demonstrated the idea as a good one one of the most important consequences is that the leaders feel free to send members into action without being inhibited by the thought that they may make mistakes. For they already know that mistakes need not be disastrous, provided that all concerned study them in due course, learn from them, and try to ensure that they are not repeated. Bolshevik self-criticism is of considerable psychological importance because it helps to create a serious-minded approach to the members' activities. To the man who joins the Communist Party and sees self-criticism at work, it looks like clear evidence that here is a serious-minded group of people anxious to cut through all the cant and nonsense and get on with their jobs, to get on with the jobs that matter. 
Let me give you, from my own experience, an example of the way it works. At the beginning of the last war, I was living in an industrial suburb in London. The population of the town had almost doubled in, I think it was, the previous six years. Since it was surrounded by build-up areas, and there was no undeveloped land within the town's boundaries, this meant that there had to be two families living in almost every house. The accommodation for domestic fuel, which had been provided by the builders of the houses, was naturally intended for the needs of one family, not two. This was bound to create a problem. But the problem became immensely greater when Britain had to change from a peacetime economy to a war economy. Everything was diverted to meet the needs of the war factories. This included coal. In many parts of Britain, there was, as a consequence, a domestic fuel crisis. The coal did not get to the domestic consumer. It went to the factories instead, and, in addition, the railways were kept clear for the movement of raw material required by industry. At that time, I was working on the staff of the Daily Worker, a newspaper, a communist newspaper. And so most of my activities and interests were in central London. I saw little of my home borough, which had become little more than a dormitory for me. But in time I became aware that it was in the throes of a severe fuel crisis. No domestic coal had come there for weeks. The people were not of the class, nor had they the facilities, to lay in large stocks in advance. So they had already used up their fuel. The winter was a bitterly cold one. People were living in their unheated homes, and this involved discomfort for a great many actual suffering for some. I became aware of all this when I found that I had no coal left myself. I called together the leaders of the local Communist Party. There is a fuel crisis which is already hitting the working class of this town really hard, I said. People are suffering. You are living here. Most of you are working here. You must have known about it, and yet you have done nothing. The question is... What are we going to do in this situation? This calls for action by the party. I sat down there and then and wrote a leaflet which declared that the townspeople would refuse to shiver in silence. I described a situation in which old people sat by empty stoves and sick people died in unheated homes. Fuel, I wrote, should have been brought to the homes of people and must be immediately. At that stage of the war, we communists were opposing the war effort. We had said that this was an unjust war and our political line was to try and undermine it. A campaign to have fuel diverted to the homes of the people would, we knew, in its own small way hit the war effort. But was also concerned with the needs of the people. This was an ideal combination. The leaflet ended by calling on housewives to go to the town hall on Thursday afternoon at 3 o'clock and make their anger known. We had practically no housewives in the party branch and so could have no idea what the response would be. But I told the local leaders to have 10,000 copies of the leaflet printed, distributed them, and we would see who turned up. The most we dared to hope for was that sufficient people would come along for us to be able to have a fairly typical communist deputation, five genuine working-class housewives, and Douglas Hyde to keep them on the party line, which would interview the mayor. At the appointed time, we went along to see what results, if any, the leaflet had brought. So just as an aside to the audience, he's a reporter, so he gets to now tell a story in The Daily Worker about the housewives and himself being a communist agitator, you know, confronting the mayor. At the appointed time, we went along to see what results, if any, the leaflets had brought. 
There was, in fact, no question of getting some small deputation elected from those who were there. Thousands of angry housewives had come along to let the world know that they were not prepared to shiver in silence. I had been in civil wars. I have been in revolutions. But I had never seen anything more frightening than thousands of angry housewives demanding fuel to warm their shivering children. They stormed the town hall. They chased the mayor out of the parlor. They went off to the fuel office and did the same with the fuel officer. They broke some windows. Then they went home. On the following Saturday morning, I was awakened early by the sound of heavy trucks going up and down the street where I was living and, by the sound of it, up and down all the neighboring streets, too. I pulled back my blackout curtains, peeped outside, and saw that even the garbage disposal men had been pressed by the local authority into delivering coal. The council had mobilized practically every available truck in the place. Our housewives' demonstration had been given front-line, front-page treatment by the Daily Worker, which described it as a great communist campaign. Remember, the Daily Worker is where Douglas Hyde works at this point. It is a communist newspaper. It goes without saying that Monday's Daily Worker carried an even bigger story, with bolder headlines proclaiming the great victory for which our local Communist Party had been responsible, and the appropriate moral was underlined that the people of that London industrial suburb were now no longer shivering because they had refused to shiver in silence. Then came the inquest, when we met as a party branch to discuss this seemingly so successful campaign. Our propaganda had very naturally described it as a great success. But what was our verdict at the inquest? It was that the campaign had been a failure. Why? We had demonstrated to the authorities and to ourselves that the housewives of our town were angry at a situation which had grown out of the war. We had thousands of angry housewives in fighting mood. Then victory had come, but it had come too easily. Now, as a consequence, we had thousands of content, complacent housewives sitting smugly by their stoves, preening and complimenting themselves on what they had achieved by their own efforts. We should have built up class anger. We should have given the campaign a revolutionary content. We ought to have made some converts to the Communist Party, some new readers of the Daily Worker. We had not done so. From our point of view, the results had been unhelpful rather than helpful to the revolutionary cause. We wrote it off as a failure. That is Bolshevik self-criticism in action. If there was anything in this for others to adopt and adapt, it is surely the attitude of mind. A determination to be absolutely honest with yourself and with each other about what you were doing. To cut through the compliments and can't so that it is possible to see whether the purposes of your cause have really been served by the activities in which you have engaged. To say to yourself and to each other, what is all this really about? What is it really for? Communists, it is often said, are concerned with changing society, not with changing individual men. This is true in the sense that they believe that they will change men by changing society. That, by improving man's environment, they will enable them to evolve more rapidly into a fully civilized being. But it is also true to say that the individual communist is concerned to improve himself and that he can only become a good communist by doing this, or to turn it around the other way. Men who are anxious to become better people, 
can find an outlet for this within the Communist Party. This is no doubt one of the many reasons why one finds so many former seminarians, spoiled priests, men who in their youth dreamed of being Buddhist monks or Hindu temple priests, and still more who, having grown up against a very strong religious family background, have rebelled against their religion, yet find a very natural home within the party of atheistic communism. The need for the communist to concern himself with self-improvement is stressed more eloquently and attractively in Lu Shouqi's How to Be a Good Communist. This book is based upon a series of lectures delivered at the Institute of Marxism-Leninism in Yinan in 1939, whilst the communists were still fighting desperately to achieve their victory. It is studied by communists the world over, no matter whether they be of the pro-Peking or of the pro-Moscow schools. Lu Shaoqi explains the aims of communism in global and heroic terms. It is a good communist instructor. Quote, What is the most fundamental and common duty of us Communist Party members? As everyone knows, it is to establish communism, to transform the present world into a communist world. Is a communist world good or not? We all know it is very good. In such a world, there will be no exploiters, oppressors, landlords, capitalists, imperialists, or fascists. There will be no oppressed and exploited people, no darkness, ignorance, backwardness, etc. In such a society, all human beings will become unselfish and intelligent communists with a high level of culture and technique. The spirit of mutual assistance and mutual love will prevail among mankind. There will be no such irrational things as mutual deception, mutual antagonism, mutual slaughter, and war, etc. Such a society will, of course, be the best, the most beautiful, and the most advanced society in the history of mankind. Who will say that such a society is not good? Here the question arises, can communist society be brought about? Our answer is yes. But this is the whole theory of Marxism-Leninism, about which a scientific explanation that leaves no room for doubt. There is a note of almost religious certainty, reminiscent of the early days of Christianity, about that last sentence. A century ago, Karl Marx told his followers, you will have to go through 15, 20, 50 years of civil wars and international conflicts not only to change the existing conditions, but also to change yourselves and to make yourselves capable of wielding political power, says Lu Chongqi. Thus, men should regard themselves as being in need of and capable of being changed. They should not look upon themselves as something unchanging, perfect, holy, and beyond reform. It is in no way an insult, but the inevitable law of natural and social evolutions Otherwise, men cannot make progress. To pass from a novice to a mature and well-experienced revolutionary able to cope with any situation calls for a long, a very long process of revolutionary stealing and cultivation, that is, a long process of reformation. Marxists see themselves as the conscious and willing instruments of the process of change at work in the world and in human society. Therefore, they believe that they can accelerate and direct that process. This is true of their approach to society and of their approach to men, too, particularly of their own members. 
If they are going to produce a party composed of steel-hardened cadres, they must transform the raw material which comes into their hands and do it as effectively as possible. For this reason, they pay enormous attention to the task of trying to develop each individual party member, taking account of varying aptitudes, preferences, talents, and potentialities. Study, Lu Chaoxi observes, can help the process of development. But, he adds, we study for the sole purpose of putting into practice what we have learned. It is for the party and for the victory of the revolution that we study. The men and women the party wishes to produce must be an elite. Membership of the Communist Party has often been linked to membership of a religious order. Those who hold this view will find some support for it in Lu Shanqi's statement that the Marxist principle is that personal interests must be subordinated to the party's interests, partial interests to total interests, temporary interests to long-range interests, and the interests of one nation to the interests of the world as a whole. Or again, he writes, stealing and cultivation are important for every party member, whether he be a new member of non-proletarian origin, or even a veteran member, or a member of proletarian origin. This is because our Communist Party did not drop from the heavens but was born out of the Chinese society, and because every member of our party came from this squalid old society. Hence, our party members have more or less brought with them remnants of the ideology and habits of the old society, and they remain in constant association with all the squalid things of the old society. We are still in need of stealing and cultivation in every aspect for the sake of enhancing and preserving our purity as the proletarian vanguard and for the sake of raising our social qualities and revolutionary technique. That is the reason why Communist Party members must undertake self-cultivation. The Christian wrestles with the old Adam. The good communist wrestles with the old bourgeoisie beneath his skin. But the party member is not left to achieve all that is expected of him in some lonely fight with his baser bourgeoisie self. Nor is he left to wrestle alone with his self-cultivation like someone trying to pass some impossibly difficult examinations on the basis of self-study courses. The party is there to aid him. In a famous speech to the graduates from the Red Army Academy in May of 1935, Joseph Stalin launched the slogan, Cadres Decide Everything. Techniques, he said, were important, but in the final analysis, it was upon people that techniques depended for their success. It was no use simply trying to develop techniques if you did not also develop your people. This slogan was taken up and applied in practical fashion by communist parties all over the world. In every one of them was established a special cadres department. This existed in every level of the party. Its task was to ensure that every and each member was developed to the uttermost, made just as effective as possible in the fight for communism. From the top to the bottom of the party, at every organizational level, people were appointed to supervise this work. In a well-run local branch, for example, 
There would be the cadre's secretary, who was supposed to know all the members individually and to know as much about them as possible. A good cadre secretary kept a card index file in which were noted forms of activity in which each member engaged, the classes he attended, his responses to them, those spheres of activity or study in which he had excelled, those too, for which he had shown no aptitude or inclination. Within the particular unit of the party, the cadre secretary had an overriding authority. By this, I mean that he was entitled to go into the branch or group leader and say that he considered that Comrade X was being used for too much campaigning, was in danger of becoming an activist who knew little of what all the action was about, or, conversely, was attending too many classes but doing little of a practical character and so was in danger of becoming an armchair philosopher. He would tell the group leader that this situation had to be rectified, and together they would discuss how the comrade concerned might most easily be persuaded to bring about a proper balance between theory and practice in his life. It would then be the cadre secretary's job to see that this was accomplished. He would visit a member he considered to be in need of guidance, who looked like developing away from the party, or perhaps showed signs of still clinging to old bourgeoisie prejudices and attitudes. Earnestly, they would discuss together how the comrade might improve himself and so become a good communist, the sort of person he wanted to be. There is not the slightest doubt that when this cadre's work was operating most successfully, it brought about the very rapid development of party cadres, gave the individual communist a feeling that, having totally committed himself to the party and submitted himself to the direction of the cadre secretary, he was now an improving person and on the way to perfecting himself as a communist. If a cadre is doing good work, than it has in the past made a major contribution to the production of the men of special mold, which Stalin said communists should be. It is the fact that from this relatively small minority group, a quite disproportionate number of leaders have come. They are to be found at the top of trade unions, peasant organizations, professional bodies, cultural groups. It is not all done by trickery. When we seek for explanations, we have to look at the training which they have been given, the way in which they have been formed in their study classes, and the way in which the party develops them from day to day, using their abilities, drawing out their potentialities for self-cultivation and for leadership. And we can admit that all these things the Communist Party does well. When Joseph Stalin concerned himself with the development of people, when he tried to impress upon his party leaders that people must be treasured and developed, he had, of course, only a certain section of the people in mind, those in the Communist Party or who were of direct and immediate use to it and, as was later shown, who were of immediate use to himself. His humanity was selective, but his slogan, cadres decide everything, was not a bad one. There is no reason why other people who are not concerned just to help a minority, but with all mankind, should not adopt this slogan to their purposes.
education and leadership, campaigns, cadres, and various other things. You're joined in the studio today by Daniel Heed and Claire Mayo. Hello. Hi, Hi. Claire. Hi. Hi, Daniel. Yeah. So the very first line sticks out to me, which is why I'm going to start talking first. The party lives by its campaigns. And as you know, I'm uh, sort of reading this book with my annotations to the church. And I, I want to make sure not to make it only an indictment against the church. I also, I mean, I love the church. Christ died for the church. So I need to remind myself to also love the church. I wish that the church said that the church thrives by its crusades. And when I think of crusades, there are a couple of things that come to mind. One is the slightly cringy connotation that that uh, Billy Graham created. But when Billy Graham created the crusades in the 1950s, it didn't have that cringe factor. It was a callback to history. And it's very, very politically incorrect now to talk about the crusades. The crusades were evil. The Christians were evil. Everything that the crusades were about were evil, which is false. That's an utter lie from Satan. And I reject it. And so that's one reason why I wish that the church today did, in fact, thrive by its crusades. I wish that the church militant had a E-Day fix, something that they could really grasp onto and march to change the world. Have you ever been part of a crusade? Only of the evangelistic variety. I see. Well, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the campaign that the Catholic Church enacted against communism in 1989. Pope John Paul II had a prayer vigil, and it is directly attributed with the breaking down of the Berlin Wall. And it was over a one-month period where the church was meeting regularly in prayer to protest a great evil. And that evil was, of course, the communist regime and the breakup of East and West Germany. And so that is a campaign that, that the church went on. That was a crusade that the church enacted, and there was definite material uh, victory and results. There was something that overnight this happened, and the rest of the world could look back to and say the Catholic Church did it. That's one of my frustrations is now people don't even remember that the Catholic Church did that. Oh uh, well, you know there were economic factors, and you know there were we were starting a war in Saudi Arabia, and there were some. No, that is not what brought down the wall. What actually happened is Pope John Paul II said we're going to pray against this regime, and we're going to protest against it. We're actually going to work this out. Yeah, he set, his, he set his face against evil. Yeah. yeah. He's They're, declared a saint now, by the way, in the Catholic Church. Oh, well, uh, he already good. was one in yeah. the Protestant Church. He is a hero of the faith. Mm-hmm. And probably one of the great heroes of the faith, um, definitely of this... Century. Yeah, of this century. Agreed. Activity in itself serves an important purpose, but it has to be made as meaningful as possible. And so I... I I underline that because that's really, really important. Activity must be made as meaningful as possible. And this is something that I see lacking in the church. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of activity with not a lot of productivity. There's a lot of stacking chairs for father, as we talked about two weeks past. (laughs) There isn't a lot of take names, kick ass, save the innocent and defeat evil. Right. It's mostly just about being busy. Mm -hmm. There's a, a difference between feeling like you're doing good or feeling valid or useful just by being busy instead of having an actual goal or an actual product come out of that busyness. Mm -hmm. And so what that tells me is that any activity that we engage in as Christians for the glory of Christ can be made meaningful. Yeah. It just requires a little bit of work. And there there are mundane tasks that have to be done. You know, there's yard work, things like that. 
And for one, I think we have to understand Hopkins to bring glory to God through working in the garden, changing diapers, the less glorious parts. But there is also, hey, congregation, believers, we are taking down this stated evil. And I want to talk about that a little bit more as we get going. Mm -hmm. But that is something that... Well, that makes me think of, often brings my mind back to the difference between Martha and Mary. Uh Uh-huh. Is that, you know, she was constantly, Martha was being busy. That's how she thought she was serving. She was taking care of everything. She was making sure everything was perfect. She was got the food, making sure everything, Jesus had everything he needed, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, no, you should be more like Mary. She's actually getting value out of this. She's listening. She's learning. There is. Yeah. There's a relational aspect here. Yes. But some of it is Jesus kind of looking to the future going, I ain't going to be here forever. Mm hmm. There are mundane tasks. There are tasks without glory, mm-hmm. except that we intend them to give glory to God. Yeah. And those have that meaning in them. However, there are larger tasks to accomplish. There are larger things to do. So I'm not just talking about the mundane things, and I'm not talking about sitting down and listening, which is what Mary did. Mary sat down at the feet of Jesus, and she right. was reprimanded by her sister because she wasn't doing the work. So what I'm trying to say is, yes, we need to sit down and listen. Yes, we need to learn the scriptures, and we need to develop a relationship with Christ. We absolutely have to press into a relationship with Christ. It's not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. However, there is also the greater tasks for the glory of God. There are There is the kingdom of God to bring onto earth. There is rebellion to stamp out. There are enemies to crush under our heads. Um, yes, there are converts to be made. There are disciples to be discipled. There's teaching to be done. And there ought to be a campaign, a crusade to embark upon. That's what I'm trying to say. I wasn't making the point of what she was doing was right, like just the sitting and listening. I wasn't talking about the mechanism. I was talking about how she was keeping busy and just doing things, and she was doing something of virtue. She was doing something of value. And not that what Martha was doing wasn't valuable, it's just in There was that, a greater thing. Yes, there was a greater thing. And that's what I mean by it's not just tasks. It's about what it is about, what it's producing. And I'm not arguing with you. I'm arguing with the church at large who says, we don't have to do anything. We just have to be Christians. Right, and that's, and that's Yeah, <laughs> because they are drawing from Mary and saying, well, Mary was just at the feet of Jesus, and that's where we need to be. Yeah. <laughs> she but, didn't stay there. <laughs> she didn't. There, there was something that comes home to me on this Uh just right out right out of the gate some of, some of the best parts of this chapter actually right in the first couple of paragraphs and it really rung my bell but every time i come back to this because he he talks about things that the first time people read it they're like uh-huh yeah and then they start trying to do it and it turns into what they thought was a rabbit hole turns this like kind of opens up to a black hole mm-hmm. and you come to realize that what he's touching on here in this chapter is staggering Mm-hmm. The implications of what's being stated, particularly early on, is absolutely mind-blowing. And it stands on its head a great deal of what we're up against because he's speaking to the Catholic Church and he goes on to elaborate some of the competing commitments that the Catholic Church is dealing with around being nice, around not making trouble, around the staggering inefficiencies of the bureaucracy that exists in the Roman Catholic uh, tradition. Which the Protestant Church is not free of. Uh, agreed, agreed, and he could have been writing about any denomination. He says the party lives by its campaigns. Mm-hmm. This is not one of its slogans, and unlike some others, 
Sorry, this is one of its slogans. There we go. And <laughs> unlike some others, it has a lot of truth in it. The majority of recruits in the party, as noted earlier, come in through the campaigns which the party organizes. So in the late 90s and then early uh, 2000s. And then I kind of circled back around to it a few times. It took me a while to get out of it. Imagine a planet kind of orbiting a uh, black hole. <laughs> I think that's ultimately what was going on, but it wasn't a perfect round circle. I was kind of kind of going on an oval, and um, I was uh, I was I was working around perfect theology. So I'd come to believe that perfect theology was going to render me effective in the kingdom of God. A a perfect theology. I would assert, is unachievable. Mm. You will never have a perfect theology. Now, this is an important point. There are staggering heresies that if you buy into are going to completely contaminate and derail everything that you do. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. Accurate. It is also true that God loves you and that he is pursuing you with his grace. And I know that's extremely Calvinist, but stay with me, baby birds. You still live in a world of sowing and reaping. Mm-hmm. And that being the case, those two do not necessarily contradict each other. If you read Calvin, which I have read John Calvin's Institutes in the Christian Religion, you see that he doesn't walk away from, he doesn't walk into, I should say, he doesn't walk into fatalism and mm-hmm. all of the pathetic trappings that go along with it. So I had started to become an extremely neutralized, I would say I was neutralized, uh, theologian, armchair theologian, who never Mm -hmm. actually created anything but spent a great deal of time consuming theology. And then looking at all the other other schools of thought and other churches in order to find things wrong with their theology. And I spent tremendous amounts of time critiquing these guys like a good old-fashioned armchair quarterback will do. And it was absolutely absurd in hindsight. And now I run up against these people, and of course I have no patience for them. <laughs> uh, I, I want to oh, look at look at these guys. They're heretics. Why? Well, they have this and they have that, and here's what's wrong with them. And I'm like, um, they agree with you on nearly every single thing. Y- and, and you're arguing that you don't agree on this one obscure thing, but if we drill down to it, you might be surprised that you do. Mm. And, uh, well, how, how can you say such a thing, Jared? Well, because you've only been doing this for five years. <laughs> I did it for 15. You haven't actually read all the books I've read. You didn't do it as hardcore as I did. I wasted a lot of my life on this. You want to argue about predestination and the tulip and whether or not John Calvin was right? Wow, that's original. I've never done that before. Oh, you want to argue about what? There's any number of things that people want to argue about when it comes to their theology. But what if there's a third option? Instead of saying, well, I'm going to do no theology at all, which is what, what, what a lot of Christians will do. Mm-hmm. They, they look at it, and they, they look at the people that do it, and they're like, this guy just walks around criticizing everyone else and putting and honestly being self-righteous about it, seeing himself as, as morally superior because his theology is somehow superior to so-and-so and what's-his-name. In the meantime, they don't actually do jack shit and the fact that they don't do anything with their lives they spend their lives just critiquing everyone else speaks volumes about their faith and And theology yeah and how immature (laughs) their theology is yeah because again i i had a conversation with someone who was arguing that the law 
because law comes up a lot. This is, I have it, I feel like I have it once a week. It's probably not that much. But they said, oh, you know, the law, this, the law, that. And I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty well-trodden path by now for me. Um, and it comes around to the fact that they wanted to say the law, you can't legislate morality. They do like to say that. And sometimes they'll even go so far as to say you, you can't expect to legislate mosaic law. Like mosaic law is not applicable. And I'm like, well, that's pretty bold. What about the jot and tittle? What about this? What about that? What about the New Testament? What about Jesus? And we go through all of this stuff and we get to the end of it and everything just gets, gets really muddy and you don't really get anywhere. Yeah. And you, nobody changes any mind. It's like a Facebook argument. Mm-hmm. And that's how theology how arguments usually are. Nobody changes their mind. You don't really get anywhere. No one's converted. No one's no one's enlisted. There is nothing that goes on. Everyone just has fun hearing themselves talk. But the party... And, part, and perhaps at times parsing out their own ideas. The party lives on its campaigns. Mm-hmm. So as you argue about these theological issues, then you find ways, new ways to divide yourself. Mm-hmm. So I get to divide myself from that guy. You get to divide yourself from that guy. I get to divide myself from this other guy. In the meantime, the communists are over there going, how do we get a bridge across the railroad track? Mm-hmm. And they're kicking our asses. And you say, well, 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 Jared, I can't work with the Calvinists <laughs> or I can't work with the communists or I can't work with the Catholics because their theology isn't right. right. And that's really what it comes down to. I, yeah. I'm going to start my school. He's going to have his girl school. I'm going to withdraw from the public schools to have my little school. And he's going to have his little school because their theology isn't right. Their their ideas aren't quite right. In the meantime, the Cal, the communists are like, okay, now I have the schools because all the other opposition just abandoned it. Yeah. And instead of going, okay, here's the problem. The problem is we're having terrible curriculum getting rolled out. We got kids that are corrupting. We got lousy teachers. So let's solve the problem and demand that there be changes and actually train our people to be the best and run the schools. That is not what occurs to people. What occurs to people instead is that they are going to withdraw and withdraw and withdraw and find like-minded people who all agree that everyone else is wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is not what this is doing. What he's talking about with his campaigns is finding the problem, presenting the solution, and enrolling people in changing the physical world around them through, at times, legislation, turning them into permanent team members, and then developing them along the way. Mm -hmm. Instead of this weird, squirrely, let's argue about theology garbage. Well, that was one of the most frustrating things for me when leaving Catholicism was that the people who fought the most were the Christ followers. That's... It, it was so frustrating to me. I wasn't Catholic anymore, so I was wrong and I was going to hell and all that kind of stuff. And then I'd go to... <laughs> A Protestant church. And then I'd go to oh, my first Protestant church and be like, oh, this is great, this is awesome, and have them tell me all the reasons why I'm wrong and and argue about petty things and theology and stuff that doesn't really matter in the long run. And then, you know, have that conflict with my syndicate family and be like, oh, well, you're wrong for dancing. You're, you know, this is sinful and everywhere. It just, I'm getting too frustrated. I don't. Well, you're (laughs) describing a, a very common problem. If they attack the world, the world is going to viciously savage them. However, Christians are safe to attack. It's safe for me to attack Jared because Jared has to forgive 
And I, if I strike him on one cheek, I know that he has to turn the other one. So Christians are always safe targets. That's true. Yeah, I, think just, that, I think we're all on the same it. team. So it's, it's right. just really frustrating and to it, me. And, and this has come up again. Well, this, this seems to come up. Come back I mean, up at least I once can't a even year. sue for slander against a Christian, Chris, uh, biblically. Moving on, moving a couple to page uh, one hundred eleven, he talks about how the campaigns are Christians. If Christians, Democrats, and others are quote out of touch with the people, if they do not see that they have a responsibility to concern themselves with the everyday needs of the common people, then they have no cause to complain when the communists come along, conduct a campaign for their own purposes, take the converts, and maybe the credit too. So what you referred to was the fact that the churches have kind of broken down into their own camps, they've got their solidified positions, and most of the time that they they spend attacking, they're attacking other Christians, and they're abandoning, you mentioned the school, and I actually wrote down, a prime example of the church refusing to interfere in an everyday concern was with the recent initiative on sex education that occurred in Washington State. For the listener who isn't aware, the initiative was horribly secular and anti-Christ. It was talking about the correct way to use pornography to teenagers. He was talking about sexual positions to middle schoolers. It was teaching masturbation to kindergartners. It was full-blown evil. Yeah, it was grooming for pedophilia, too. And the church could have organized and spearheaded the res- resistance and decried it from the pulpit. They could have filled out petitions, and they could have gained by it by its effort, certain uh, rewards. They could have gained everything that they talked about with campaigns, which I wanted to talk about really quickly. Uh, Campaigns keep the members active, they attract others to the movement, and they create the image of an organization which alone concerns itself with people's problems. Instead, the church was silent on the issue. I heard nothing from any of the Christian programs. I heard nothing from the pulpit. I heard nothing in any way of, this is an evil that is being perpetrated against our children, and the church should be the very first line of defense against this. And instead, there was nothing. So the campaigns is an alien idea to Christians. We're not taught how to run a campaign. We're not taught the the moral imperative of a campaign. And I think that there are a lot of reasons, and I'm just going to list some of them. This is not an exhaustive list, but I'm going to tell you some of them. One of them is we are committed to comfort, and we are not committed to changing the culture. Uh, Second is they rightfully recognize that this is going to take resources, and that might cause them to lose money. So if all my resources are no longer going to salary for three or four pastors, and I have to eliminate at least two of my pastors in order to carry on this campaign, they don't want to do it. Or do uh, money initiative drives. You have to campaign right. well, that way it's, too. This is now, well, that, the money initiative drive cuts into my short-term mission. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And so you've got that. And then I believe this to be true of the overwhelming majority of the Christian congregations in Yakima. I don't want to speak to the rest of the world right now. They have promoted people in their congregation who do not want to fight evil. They are there expressly to avoid that. I want to touch on that really quick. Everything you've said is right. And point three B or point four, I'm not sure which is going on a campaign draws heat. It draws criticism. And of course, what we all know is that the anyone who is anti-Christ, anyone who's against Christ is going to be against Christ's body and against his bride. You cannot avoid that. And so going down into your turtle shell and hoping to avoid offense is not going to cut it. However, I do acknowledge that going on a campaign, taking a stand, fighting against evil is going to get your name dragged through the mud. And the 
ungodly journalists are going to pick through everybody's past and they're going to slander them horribly. They're going to make up anything that they can and they're going to make up outright lies. That's a fact that I think the last four years should have taught everyone paying attention. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, well, you know, we need to be above, above reproach. Well, one, Christ wasn't above reproach. Christ actually had the, the Pharisees say he's, he's a demon, he's, he's got a demon, he's a wine-bibber, he's, he hangs out with harlots and, and prostitutes and tax, tax collectors. So one, Christ failed in that. Two, they hate us. They will attack us. Mm-hmm. I think it would be better if we gave them a reason to attack us than hiding. But that's just me, I guess. But that's a point no, that no, I wanted to... No, 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 it, it is a great point. And let's dwell on this for a second. You know, predominantly, any new listeners that are kind of brand new, new to Both these of ideas, you? I don't have to convince you that evil people are out there trying to destroy you. But there seems to be a disconnect until you experience it. And it, and the best way to just fast forward and experience being persecuted just because you're a threat. Mm-hmm. Not because of what you've done. And for to have them manufacture lies out of thin air at times. And then other ways at other times to take things and bloat them into a lie. Mm -hmm. And then at other times to find things that are genuine screw ups of yours and to turn those into something to destroy you with as best they can. Mm -hmm. So this is what you're dealing with. And they leave you alone if all you're doing is attacking other Christians. They (laughs) leave you alone if that's what you do. They'll hand you rocks. Yeah. But as soon as you start outlining a campaign to interface with their agenda, that is actually with the communist agenda, then you're going to face some heat. It's called persecution. It's called a good thing, according to Matthew chapter 5. But Christians don't know how to campaign. And one of the reasons that they don't know how to campaign that I haven't listed yet is a lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So... Some of it are the reasons that I just stated, but then there's a bunch of people who desperately want to. But all the, 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 the base program, if they're computers in this allegory, these computers never downloaded the program that enabled them to run campaigns. And so they, they don't have those programs. They're alien to them. It, they cannot comprehend it. The only programs that they have, they learned at the churches, which they may or may not even attend anymore, and they were never shown, taught, or experienced how to run a campaign, how to actually do it. So on page 107, books by Lenin and Stalin read like military textbooks. The terminology is that of the military academy. Communists think in terms of strategy and tactics. They think like so many army officers. And any military man should know that the art of campaigning is to be able to maintain the morale of your troops come what may. I need to, re- I need to restate that. Any military man should know that the art of campaigning is to be able to maintain the morale of your troops come what may. So we are told again and again in Scripture that the Christian life is a battle. You can say that it is also a marriage. You can also say that it's a dance. You can say that it's a journey or a walk, but it's often described as a battle because it's true. He, the military leader, knows that a big defeat may lead to his men's being demoralized, but that there are ways of avoiding this. He knows or should do that you can take a big defeat and still maintain morale if you throw your troops quickly into action again in some sector of the front where they can get a quick victory no matter how small. So again, I want to point that out. Quick, small victories are very, very valuable, and Mm -hmm. I don't see the church going for those. Moving on very, very quickly. Leave them inactive, and before long they are demoralized. I would actually say that that is one of the driving 
spirits of the church, demoralized. And so this is my question, Jared, because Jared and I have had a, a conversation that goes back a couple of years on Christian burnout. And Jared, you said that the reason that Christians are getting burnt out is because they are not abiding in Christ. They are removing themselves from the vine, and they are, and they are, and they are not getting the supply that is promised in the, in the Bible. So I want to challenge you on this based on what the communists are doing. What he is saying is that it is the leader's job to maintain morale. So my question is, where does the Christian's morale come from? Does it come from Christ? Does it come from his church? Does it come from their pastor? The communists would say that it is the leader of the group, the party leader. And in this particular example, we don't have a better one than the pastor. We don't have a pope. We don't have a single figure on earth who is in charge of all of the church. So it's broke down. It's a little bit more decentralized. So I cannot say that we have a higher authority than the pastor, unfortunately. And we can talk about that a little bit. So my question, Jared, is whence comes the Christian's morale? We have to agree uh, that the church is not organized to fight evil. It is organized to accommodate mediocrity. Yes. So... That oversimplification, such as it is, we'll roll with it at the moment. It's to comfort its parishioners, and you can you can say that's that it's, in other words, its its stated mission is to keep as many as it can and to create a comfortable zone for people to grow in Christ is what they would state. And unfortunately, with that as your view, it with that as your goal and your purpose, it it tends towards mediocrity. So I do acknowledge the result there, if not the the goal. When people say you are going to a church or you are part of a church, they assume that that means that you do two things. First, you attend their Sunday mornings, and second, you may or may not be a part of some kind of cell group. Small group, Bible study. etc. At the study group, such (laughs) as they are, they are absolutely nothing like the dedication leadership style study group because they don't do campaigns. Mm-hmm. They I don't do anything except sit around and read the Bible. Now we already know that that's what they do. They may have conversations and 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 they they may learn a lot, but, but it's they incredibly don't boring. Do a campaign. They don't find they don't canvas a neighborhood, find out what the problem is, then you know do the thing that he described with the housewives or do the thing that he described, etc. That is <laughs> your your understanding of how the church currently works. So if you come to me and you say burnout is this mm-hmm. and I would say yes I agree but morale I don't think is the same thing as this burnout because this burnout language that's used is kind of a catch-all for many things but I would never say it's necessarily a morale issue because and this is why because it was never there in the first place mm. morale has to be there in the first place you have to be an army in order to be an army that loses its morale over here is an army that loses its morale or gains its morale that is in the battle. This over here is not an army. It's just not. Yes. This is burnout. And so I when I assert that you can point in fact, hold on to a vibrant relationship with Christ where you never suffer this quote unquote burnout, that is one thing. I can lose morale because I lost so many battles in succession over here and still have a pretty vibrant relationship with Christ and not be burnt out. And I know that because I've lost a lot of battles in quick succession and my morale has taken a hit and I'm not burnt out. I'm not. You have answered my question and I agree with you. In your opinion, burnout and morale are not the same thing and you can't suffer a morale loss if you're not doing anything. Well, I would, I mean... Yes. You can't, you can't lose something you don't have. Right. It's, it's difficult to... 
Yeah. You see why I had to like set up this definition thing because it's really hard to dismiss it out of hand. Yeah. But it really does dovetail into my point. Thank you, Dan. Um, is that uh, we do not have an army. Yeah, we do. The Salvation Army. I guess there's that. Yeah, we have an army. We we do. We are under the banner of Christ. We are, uh, I mean, Hopkins says that we are in the ranks of of, of God's army. And, and occasionally, occasionally, there'll be some people who will go rogue and they'll be like, you know what? It, it's like trench warfare in World War One, and a, occasionally the, the stasis will get to people and they'll say, screw it, I'm going to go, and, they, and then they show up on the news. <laughs> and sometimes they achieve great things by themselves, and other times not so much. The point is they run out completely unsupported, and then whatever results they take, they that is what happened. But there is no large push. There is no whistle blowing and say, okay, we're taking this on. Let's go. Yeah. And, and now I want to talk about campaigns more specifically. There are different elements in a campaign. You need to look at the campaign to take over the world. You need to look at the campaign to take over your state. You need to look at the campaign to make a difference in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You need to recognize you need small wins. And I think all of that is super straightforward. I don't want to spend a ton of time dwelling on it other than to say I have been criticized when I've said things like, we're going to take the valley for Christ. And then I go and I do short-term <laughs> campaigns and I do midterm campaigns and I do long-term campaigns. They come back and they say, hey, it's been a year and a half and you haven't taken the valley for Christ. Therefore, I'm like, actually, it's been 30 years. <laughs> so there. <laughs> so I'm way more of a loser than you realize. And this is the ground we've taken in the last five. This is the ground we've lost in the last two. This mm-hmm. is the... But what would be a short victory? What would be a quick win? Having a successful banquet and ball where you enroll people into a moral imagination issue and now they are bought into, even if they're not necessarily bought into your community in the long term, they still speak that language and they're bought into the idea that we can strive for something lovely and beautiful even if it is somewhat unattainable permanently, etc., etc. Like these... There are certainly small wins when you bring in someone and you expand their horizon and then they, they get the chance to opt in or opt out. Because at this point, we see a bunch of zombies and they never get the chance to opt in or opt out. I would count small-time conversion. I say small-time being instead of an entire city saying, we will now follow the Lord. I'd say small-time conversions are individuals who convert to Christianity. I say big-time conversions would be family units that convert to Christianity. I have seen both happen and they have both happened on my watch. I'm not going to say that I'm the one that converted them. I'm going to say the Holy Spirit led them or pursued them and chose them and won them over, and I was the jackass that got to be used by him. But I will say I have seen that, and I've seen it many times. But that is not the exclusive example of a small-time win. Another example of a small-time win is taking control of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, would you say that a, a short-term win would be like shutting down an abortion clinic or is that a long-term one? I think realistically uh, an abortion clinic is a long-term win. Okay. Because you have to recognize that that, uh, we have to take the abortion clinic and we have to understand that this is essentially um, a piece of Auschwitz that's been established in our town. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that being the case, in order to put an end to Auschwitz and in order to put an end to the wholesale slaughter of humans, you have to play a longer game than just showing up, waving some signs, turn, you know, turning away a few people, saving a few lives, as incredible as that is. Mm-hmm. Well, because I, I witnessed it happen. and it, it, I mean, of course, I was a teenager. It didn't mm-hmm. seem to take very long. But again, but you I, didn't I, see 
Right. I didn't see all the background. I didn't. The 60s up to when. Exactly. Exactly. And and some of that was prayer and some of that was this, some of that was that. Like Planned Parenthood, in order to root out the Planned Parenthood in Yakima, we have to play a big, fat, ballsy game. So talking about abortion, because that's a very great example of an evil that is tolerated and even tolerable in our society, which it's intolerable to God, so there's that. You said taking taking hold of the narrative, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, and there's a shift that's occurred on the narrative around abortion in the last two years, which is very exciting. Two years ago, by and large, well, abortion is, you know, it's, 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 you know, there's a lot of good things. I'm, I'm speaking facetiously. I don't agree with anything that I'm saying. Planned Parenthood does a lot of great services, and abortion is really only 3% of what they do. bullshit. That is correct. It is complete and utter bullshit. And apart from that, it was viewed as abortion is necessary. That was the idea. Abortion is necessary, and some people said it was a necessary evil. Most people just said it was necessary. It's just it's women's health services. And what's interesting is that in the last two years, there's been a polarization. And now the people who are in charge, who are leading the charge on, yes, abortion, are going way further because, there's a, there, because there is a narrative that is shifting, and Christians are stepping up to the plate, and they are actually creating some—they're presenting some very ex- excellent and eloquent refusals. And you said it's, it's a little piece of Auschwitz, evocative and true. Mm-hmm. And so the people who are in favor of abortion are now saying, I eat babies, I slit their throat, and I listen so that they can't scream. And, and they're becoming—their horribleness is becoming more and more obvious. Yeah. The longer this goes, yeah. and I'm hopeful that we can change Thank those God. moderates who are like, well, it's evil, but it's probably necessary. No. And to be able to shift those people to say, oh, you believe it's evil? Okay, great. Then come over here. I don't care if you think that it's necessary. I'm willing to take that you believe that it's evil. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, okay, that means you're willing to throw rocks. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and, and so there is a shift there. And if my church said, we will support every unwed mother we can find— then that's one part of the narrative that would go away. Well, who, are you going to take care of the babies? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, can, I, can, I can point out people and say, if you have a baby, take it to these people. They will raise it and love it. That's what James and I say to every single couple we've ever met that's ever talked about an abortion or said, oh, I might not keep the baby or blah, blah, blah. <sighs> tell them and tell all your friends that if you don't want a baby, give it to us. Yeah. <laughs> we will take your baby. Amen. <laughs> that is really uh, a great point. I will take your baby, but being extremely organized with the church where you're like, okay, how many people in this church? How are we going to subsidize that? So we get more of it. Mm -hmm. We need to be touching on this. We need to be reiterating this. We need to be talking about this. We need to get certified for this. Let's get the government out of this. Yeah. And, or, uh, Oh, you have to do this. You have to jump through that hoop. You know, there's a lot of ways that we can deal with this. Another one is buy houses that are big enough to fit a bunch of babies in it. But the other thing that has to happen when I talk about playing a long game is, you have to look at your big goal. You have to count the cost. Uh-huh. You have to basically say, this is what's going to cost us. Yeah, and but that's not a short-term win, which is what we were yeah, parsing yeah. out. Yeah. And, but, but back to the book, he says, your short-term wins need to be related to your long-term win. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they have to lead towards that. Otherwise, they're weird commu- detours. They are, and communicating that within your group is terribly important. So when it comes to me, and, and a lot of the activities that I've committed to, which I'm not going to get into, as tempting as it is right now, it is heavily influenced by my desire to ma- to eradicate abortion in the world mm-hmm. and in Washington State and in my town. Mm-hmm. 
I loved what you said about the small term goal uh, as the bank went a ball. That was one where as soon as you said that, I'm like, right, of course, the bank went a ball. That's an excellent example of a short term win. And it could pay off in the long run. It has over the last 10 years had some payout to it. But this, okay, you know, you do this for <laughs> three days, you invest this cost into it, and you get an exponential return on that. And there is that morale boost that Douglas Hyde talks about, and people are, okay, it's January, it's the third week of January, what's next? Where do we go next? What do we do next? And so for the people who don't know what a bank a ball is, I thoroughly encourage you to contact Jared and say, please tell me what the bank a ball is. I want a short-term win. You could also go to uh, an episode entitled The Young Romantics. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's entitled uh, The Young Romantics, Mayo versus the World. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. And we talk about the Bacon Ball there. So uh, back to dedication and leadership. Ta-da. I want to talk about campaigns <laughs> a little bit more because this is a big, big, fat deal. There is a book that talks about how to do campaigns. It is called The Leadership Campaign. I'm going <laughs> to say it again. The Leadership Campaign. It is out standing it is a book about how to do what he talks about in this chapter but he breaks it down cleans it all up and hammers it home and makes it incredibly useful i discovered it halfway through a political campaign Mm -hmm. there was a couple of guys that did it and they, they run a company but if you type in the leadership campaign it will come up yeah let you want to talk about support because that's a very, very fascinating topic. Or do you want to save that for another day? Yeah. yeah. Um, in the book, he talks about um, if you're running a campaign, you have to recognize that it doesn't matter what the campaign is. You are going to be dealing with uh, a spectrum. You're going to be dealing with your hard support. Your hard supporter on your side. They're on your side. They're they in your camp. You. They're in yeah. your corner. Everything that you can imagine. They are on your side. Some people enjoy that with their family. I wouldn't know what that's like. <laughs> then... <laughs> There is the soft support, soft support. (laughs) Now the soft support are the people that are like, yeah, Yeah. I'm on your side, but I'm not vocal about it. I like you. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you some money. Yeah. I'll I'll vote for you. You showed up, you campaigned, you told me who you were. You seem kind of adorable. I'm going to go ahead and vote for you. Mm -hmm. Then there's the independent, the independent cross their arms and go, I refuse to be a part of any political party. They're all terrible people. That's a good example of an independent. Well, I don't know about that. I'd have to look into it, but then they don't. No, they, they pride themselves on the fact that they're so independent, so independent, that they cannot be categorized. That's your independence. Then there is your soft opposition. They're the people that don't like you and they're not going to vote for you. Then there's your hard opposition. They're the people that attack you. Yeah. And w- if, whether you're building a bridge across a railroad track or you're running for the presidency of the United States of America, there will always be hard support and there will always be hard opposition. So the game is, how do you interact with these? With uh, the spectrum. Yeah, with the spectrum, Yeah, with these individuals. Well, the first thing that you do is you work really, really hard to keep your hard support well informed. Mm-hmm. Then your hard support enthusiastically Goes on campaign. Yeah, they go on the campaign and they interact with your soft support. And now the soft support is inclined to become hard support. To become hard support. But at the very least, the soft support is well informed about what's going on. This is the big win. This point, the independent, and this is really important, the independents Mm -hmm. who refuse to be a part of anything, they will never listen to hard support. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. In either camp. 
Right. But, but they, they will, will see. Listen. And they will see what's being done. They will see what's being done. And they will listen to soft, soft support. support. Something you... and, and that's soft a, support isn't telling them what to do. <laughs> soft support just says, I like Jared. Well, why do you like Jared? I like Jared because of this. Something yeah. you said that I yeah. thought was key was that you had seen somebody expend a huge amount of virtue trying to win over his hard opposition. Just trying to convince his hard opposition that he wasn't nearly as bad as they thought he was. And that ain't going to work. The hard opposition to Christ hates Christ. And they hate the Christ bearers. And the Holy Spirit can still change their hearts. They can take Saul and they can turn him into Paul. That happens. But that wasn't... The church going to Paul and saying, you know what? You need to stop murdering Christians and you need to be one of us. This was <laughs> Paul going to murder Christians and Jesus showing up and says, okay, that's enough of that. So, yes, I do acknowledge the Holy Spirit can change in an instant, but that's we have to operate as though we are left on our own, which is false. We are not left alone. That is, that is a that lie is from hell. Life. However, God isn't going to do the work for us. Mm-hmm. He has work to do. He's going to be doing it. And the prayers of his saints move the hand of God. So unfortunately, one of our first commands is pray that God would move. And to do that corporately, not privately. Yes, go and pray privately in your closet and then go to church and pray corporately. I yeah. can't get around this. You. So there was, a, there was one instance where there was this guy, great guy, great guy. Um, but he was convinced that uh, the reason why everybody kept fighting with each other in politics was because, you know, no one had actually refused to be offended and refused to go on the three R's, which is revenge and resistance and so on, uh, but had continued to interact with people who were even negative and kind of embrace them, right? And his hard opposition ate him alive. Mm -hmm. And they they took up a lot of his virtue and they took up a lot of his time. Here's a man that refuses to punch back. Awesome. Right. Yeah, and it, it worked to their advantage. And then he surrounded himself with other people who were apparently experts and were on his side and you know were part of his political party or whatever. And they told him, be a good guy, take the high road, don't punch back. And it was evil. It was really bad advice from terrible people who weren't his hard support. Mm-hmm. They were independents. So what I did was I took an 8.5 by 11 card and then I printed off a bunch of stickers and I put them on the eight and a half, 11 by, eight and a half by 11 card because was, this was what was I was told to do by the leadership campaign. So I actually did it and I handed it out to everybody because the lies were so intense. Mm-hmm. It had put this man into the fetal position and he was no longer capable of communicating the truth. And later on, this guy's wife came to me and said it was such a comfort knowing that whether they believed it or not, that they had that card. Refuting each of the lies point by point. Yeah. yeah. So now, now when it comes to the campaign, I have to say, if we don't campaign, this entire book is worthless. Mm-hmm. If you listen to this book, you get to the end of this book, you don't take this book and say, okay, I'm going to campaign. Then you're not doing anything. Right. And now uh, this is a bold statement. And here's why. I have been a part of churches I have been a part of organizations. I've been a part of, of movements, if you like, who took this book and did everything but campaign. They might have run one campaign, but they did not continuously campaign. They didn't look to the community. They didn't interface with the community. They withdrew into their own community because, remember, they're still into this feud with other Christians for shit. And they did not win. Mm-hmm. They did not implement this book, and I would argue they do not understand this book. Someone who did understand this book was Jesus. 
And so I'm moving into the next section on campaigning. We're not quite done with small victories because there's a little bit more to mine out of this, in my opinion. So Jesus talks to the 72, and he appoints them, and he gives them power to go out and cast out demons and to heal in his name. And then he goes off to the mountain to pray, and then he comes back, and they are elated. Huge morale boost. This is the 72. These are the 72 who would go on to change the world. And they said, we see even demons subject to us in your name. And he said, yep, that's right. So I, I see this in, ch- in uh, page 108. Um, uh, campaigning for these is like the little skirmishes into which the wise officer sends his men knowing in advance that they stand a good chance of getting a small victory. I would suggest that Jesus understood this about his people and he sent them out and he gave them a small win so that when the Holy Spirit could come and they got even more power and he was gone, they could get some really big wins. But what something that I draw from this and so from this story as well as this book is Christians like the rest of humanity need victories. Mm-hmm. We need them. Mm-hmm. We are told, we're told constantly that Christ has vanquished sin and death, which he has. But we do not feel that it is so. It doesn't feel like Christ has vanquished sin and death. It feels like sin and death rule, and that's a lie. We, we're told that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, but most of us doubt the existence of the demonic. And so this is a point that I would make, is the demonic is real, and the demonic wants to destroy all of humanity, and the church most particularly. And when we campaign, we draw heat from the hard opposition, and that hard op- opposition may be humans. Often, and here we go out on my charismatic stance, often there is a demonic element to it. And so Christians, if they are campaigning, are going to see persecution from the ungodly. They're also going to see harassment from the demonic. And that harassment can take on a whole form of things. So I, I would suggest that if we want to see Christ victorious in our lives and in the world, I think we ought to campaign. I think we have to campaign in order to see God's promises as true. And, and this is hard. This is the hard part. Campaigning is sweaty work. Mm-hmm. It, it's just incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. I was invited to a thing tomorrow night. I think I can't do it. I can't go to whatever it is that's happening tomorrow night. And I was asked why, and I said, "Well, I have to work on a campaign. Mm-hmm. I'm working on campaigns. I work on campaigns. I can't do that. I have times now where I don't work on campaigns, and the rest of the time I have to work on campaigns. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that, Jared? Why can't we all just get because?" I don't know if you looked around, but this is 1776 territory. We're on the fourth turning here. Things are not what they used to be. This isn't 1995. We don't have leisure time like we used to. Mm -hmm. Things are in chaos. We're seeing major meltdown. Everyone's seeing massive, brazen, bald-faced corruption in the federal government of the United States of America. That's a big deal in the world because the whole world watches the U.S. Yes. So we're ha- we have to figure out how to start campaigning right now. Now, I don't have to right now. I'll tell you what I have to do right now. I have to teach a bunch of people right now, mm-hmm. and that's why we're here. The thing that I found to be uh, most valuable is trying to drive home to any audience that's listening. If you are not continually campaigning, Cadres mean nothing. Criticism means nothing. Everything means nothing. You have to campaign. You have to campaign. Listen to me. Listen. You have to start a political campaign. You have to do a campaign. If you are not campaigning, you need to campaign. Join one. 
do a campaign. Am I clear? I hope you heard me wherever you are right now. All right, now let's talk about something else. <laughs> um, criticism, the inquest. The Yeah, let's talk about that. Claire. <laughs> Claire gets to talk about criticism. I think it's very important. I think it's vital for healthy relationships. I have very strong feelings about this because I am around several people who spend a majority of life and relationships and hours in the day criticizing everything. And I don't think that that is healthy or Christ-like. I don't think that you should walk around eggshells in relationships. I think you should be able to correct and criticize and say what you think safely without worrying about damaging the relationship. But I do think there is such a thing as too much. So the criticism that is primarily spoken about is first and foremost, and this is a key point, is that it is a self-criticism. And if you lose that, then you lose everything. Uh, the, the communists believe that you gain the right to c criticize others after you have revealed your own faults, after you've discussed in depth and let everyone else discuss your own faults first. And I speak to the leaders of cults everywhere who refuse to, to be under their criticism of their congregation, who have read this book. Hmm. If you do not criticize yourself and allow other people the opportunity to, shut the fuck up! Take the log out of your own eye before you pick out the splinter in your brother's. So first and foremost, we have to be self-critical. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole lot of, as soon as you say self-critical, well, that ruins me. That's going to ruin your self-esteem. Good. Your self-esteem is shit. <laughs> Our esteem comes from Christ. Christ died for us and loves us. And therefore, we ought to mortify our own flesh. It's called dying to yourself and picking up your cross. And part of that is I need to throw myself down and say, here's where I've effed up. Here's where I've screwed up. And this is something that Jared does very well. Here's my testimony. Well, that's just because I screw up so much. Perhaps. So, Claire, <laughs> I, have to, I have to say that this idea of criticism is first and foremost in the context of self-criticism. And so if I say, okay, Claire, I have some things to tell you, but first I got to explain some things. I don't know what I'm talking about here, I, and, I, and you just go through it. Yeah. Secondly, there is, a, there is a tendency in the church that we've all seen, and you alluded to it, walking on eggshells, and, yeah. and there are people who do not understand the difference between critical and criticism. Mm -hmm. Being overly critical, not good. It's not helpful to an organization if all they ever hear is, you done screwed up, you're no good, S sit in the middle, and we're going to tell you all the reasons why you have failed God and that you are no longer competent, qualified, or to be in this assembly. Yeah. That's not helpful. That's not even criticism. That's actually just being critical. Well, thank you for differentiating. So criticism is actually Claire. You said this, this, and this. And there's, I mean, this isn't in the Bible, but a truism that I found is the devil is vague. When the devil wants to guilt and shame and accuse, there's vague. Claire, you're not a nice person. Right. Jared, you don't listen enough. Be specific. The Holy Spirit is specific. If I come as someone and I and I keep it vague enough that I don't have to actually confront them about anything, yeah. then that criticism or the motive behind that criticism or the validity of that criticism is never in question. Uh huh. Guilt is automatic. Yeah. You're not a nice enough person. Well, you're right. I'm not. Thank you. 
<laughs> that's one thing that we need to draw a a distinction between. And criticism. That's exactly what I wanted to do, which is why I brought this up. I was getting I really it. upset and aggressive earlier when we were reading this, and Jared started talking about this, and he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. wait till we record." Yeah. So <laughs> I happened to know a young lady who could not take any criticism because she could not separate critical from criticism and yeah. she actually didn't want to hang out with me because I would give her criticism when asked. When asked. See, and that's... Ugh. Anyway, continue. From a leadership position, you don't wait for people to tell you what they did wrong. From a leadership position, when you have gone on a campaign, this is all in the context of mm-hmm. a campaign, the Banquet and Ball is a great example of this and that's one reason why I love that you brought this up. I know an individual who led a Banquet and Ball and refused any self-criticism. So not only would he not criticize himself, he would not allow anyone else to criticize anything that he had done or anything that he'd been in charge of. And so (laughs) his criticism, his self-criticism, and the criticism of the entire campaign boiled down to name one thing that worked and one thing that didn't work. So everything that worked is now on the same value as the things that didn't work, and you only get to name one thing. So that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is an actual humble evaluation of this was our overarching long-term goal how did we move towards that goal? And there is a goal post moving that cannot and must not happen. Well, we didn't achieve our goal this time, but you know what? It was actually a spiritual victory. <laughs> cool. You said you were going to make 50 converts. Oh, no, sorry. You said you were going to raise $50 million. Well, it was our treasures in heaven. That's a moving of the goal post. If you said we're going to make a lot of money in heaven, I wouldn't have joined your campaign, but you didn't <laughs> tell me that. What you told me was you were going to abolish abortion. <laughs> well, that's the, t- <laughs> the true... I, I read this from the Babylon Bee. The CDC now says that the true vaccine was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> and so we had... So, so there is a certain amount of, this is what we said to do, did we accomplish our goal? If we failed, how badly did we fail? I don't want to say justify, but you can say, okay, this is why we failed. This is what we learned from that. Lessons learned is a huge thing, part of this. And then in that context, the leader has the right to say, this is where I failed as a leader. This is where we failed corporately. Claire, you were in charge of the playlist, and the playlist did not work. It didn't work in these particulars. And so what I need from you is I need to, I, and basically, you know, I would at that point you would say, you know, you're right or you're wrong, and then there would be a discussion on that. But Yes, from a leadership standpoint, there is a place where you can offer criticism unasked. Correct. However, there is a stated, you're joining my campaign, therefore, at the end of this, we're going to have a debrief, and we're going to talk about how we succeeded. And and that, in my opinion, allows permission to offer criticism. Without, I agree completely. Without being critical. I want to talk about uh, Claire's experience around um, being involved with with communities that have a healthy criticism. So you... You said that you don't like the smarm. You don't like the fake. Correct. And that some of the fake is chicken exits. Mm-hmm. Right. And the chicken exit is when people use humor or they're just big and loud and they try to control a social situation where they are doing everything they can to avoid vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So you don't like that. Okay, that's that. that that's over there. That's out there, and that seems to walk hand in hand with a desire to avoid, um, criticize uh, basically post campaign criticism. So Christians are trained after they go on a campaign, however small, 
or meager it might be. Sorry, are you saying that the, the, the people who are chicken exiting are go hand in hand with not being able to ha- handle criticism after a campaign? I think that's there, yeah. Okay. If I go out on a campaign and I come back, the Christians are trained to kind of behave in a way that does not offer genuine criticism mm-hmm. and doesn't look at the problems that were present in order to solve those problems. So you've come in and I would like you to talk about your experience around healthy criticism. Do you have any stories around that? Well, the most stories I have of that are of my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Good. He He, corrects you. He is. Oh yeah. He is excellent at first of all, admitting when he's wrong. I listened to him not only because I chose him as my husband and the leader of my home, but because he is open to criticism himself. He knows that if I am sharing criticism with him and telling him something that I think is wrong or that upset me or that whatever, whatever, you did this wrong. <laughs> Obviously, I don't say it like that. But he's like, oh, okay, I, you're right. I'm sorry. And then repents. Mm-hmm. So when he offers me criticism, uh, you know, even if it's unasked for because he knows he can. <laughs> yes. Otherwise. You know what? I saw you complaining about this. And you know what? It's happening because you're doing this. That is healthy criticism in a relationship where it is mutual and it's, hey, I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to criticize me. I want you to tell me when you see that I am stumbling and I can't see what I'm stumbling over. Tell me what I'm stumbling on. That is the healthy criticism that I'm talking about. Now, give me an example of you offering criticism outside of your family unit and it being taken well. Can you give me one And it being taken well? Yeah. The first example, there's lots, but the first example that pops in my head is with Leah. Mm-hmm. Leah, good old Lakey. Yeah. When she was fresh out of high school and she was, she and I were starting to become pretty close and she was, <laughs> and every, most people know this story because it's how she and Alex like actually started dating. But before they started dating, they did not like each other. At least Ale- Leah didn't like him. And she and her, her, clique of friends love to talk shit about Alex and I was one of the only people that was really close with him at the time so I knew that it was all bullshit not only you know that it was gossiping but whatever it was wrong so I sat down with her and I told her exactly like no this not this not K (laughs) I had a healthy conversation about what she did what she was doing that was wrong and also we had a healthy relationship already we had that back and forth already we had that you know we are both christians we're both friends we can have this conversation with each other i can criticize you because i know that you know you would expect this of me and we have a biblical framework for approaching with conflict and criticism. They both apply, mm-hmm. which is the Matthew 18 process, which is if you have a yes. problem with somebody, and that problem covers a whole variety of things. One is, hey, you know, you are in sin, so you had you had that charge against Leah. This is gossip. This is slander. This is sin. Mm-hmm. You also have the, this isn't working, and we have that relationship, and so I'm going to approach you privately. And this is a principle of leadership that is long understood, you praise publicly and you and you and you criticize privately, mm-hmm. and that's how Jesus said to do it. When you offer criticism, there's this story that Bill Hybels tells in the book Axiom, where he he was hired by a pastor to uh, 
basically workshop what wasn't working in his church. And this pastor had recognized that there were things that weren't quite working, and he wanted an outside observer. And so Bill Hybels came, he sat through a couple of mess- sermons that this guy gave, and then he met with that pastor and the leadership team. And he said, okay, let's talk about some things that are chafing us, things that aren't working, things that, you know, let's, let's, this is the time for criticism. And they had, they workshopped a bunch of ideas. There were a lot of things. They had a whiteboard. They wrote down all their ideas. And then they, they took a break. They came back and then they started to problem solve. Okay, what do we need to work on here? What do we need to work on here? What do I work on here? And this is the thing. When a healthy leader has healthy criticism, it improves morale. Because the idea is you're working on a campaign. And in this particular case, I'm stretching the definition of campaign to include a church basically retooling itself. It says this is what we need to correct. We need a course correction now. And so the the, the leadership, apart from the pastor, were all very, very excited about the changes that they, that they could talk about. And after, after they concluded for the first day, they were planning for another day. The pastor came to Bill Hybels quietly and said, um, we don't need your services anymore. You can go home. And Bill said, oh, well, we're just getting started, Bucko. We, we need to get going. He said, no, we don't need you anymore. You should go. And Bill Hybel said, what's the matter? Are you offended with me? And he said, well, it, I don't like hearing you destroy every and crap on every single thing that I'm doing. That well, I don't like hearing that I'm a worthless pastor. And, and Bill Hybels had to, he said, hey, wait, hold on. This is nothing against you. These mm-hmm. are areas that need to be improved. Most of these suggestions are coming from your own people and no one is attacking you for what they perceive as areas of growth. They're excited to do this together. And the pastor doubled down and said, no, you should go now, and then discontinued any further talks. And so my point is, there is this tendency in all of leadership, and Christianity is not free of this, where if I'm a leader, I have to appear completely perfect. Oh, yeah. And criticism destroys that image. And so there are some leaders that I can think of that have been uh, very prominent that refuse all criticism because, well, that's disloyalty. Well, that shows that I'm imperfect. Well, that's disunity in the camp. Well, it's because of their sin. (laughs) Whatever you want to say, but this is a tendency in human nature that the church is not free of. I don't believe that Christians are more sinful than the world outside of them. I believe that all men are sinful and fallen, and this is one area that we want to to protect our pride. Mm -hmm. Preach it, Dan. Preach it. Uh, <laughs> hallelujah. Yeah. So, so well, uh, and that's why Leah is a perfect example of yeah, your question she because she took it like a queen. She yeah, I know, uh, it was clearly I know. hard for her. Like it was Oh, yeah. I mean, that's visibly of course, she, very she was hard. in high school. So here's this high school girl. No. But anyway, she took it really really well and yeah. she repented and she went to Alex and she apologized and she married him. Married him. <laughs> the ultimate act of repentance. I think that's really exciting. I need to explain something because this came up just the other day. The differences between confronting over sin and what Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 and criticism come into play. Mm -hmm. Um, Night before last, uh, I had a conversation with someone that was trying to parse that out. And I said, this is not confronting over sin. Mm -hmm. This is not that. It's a a subpar performance. Mm Mm-hmm. And a broken commitment because they committed to provide a, a good product, if you like. Mm-hmm. And you were part, we're, we're in the middle of a campaign. And it's not a political campaign, but we're in the middle of a campaign and this person is failing. Mm-hmm. And now you have to figure out how to deal with that. This is criticism. This isn't Matthew 18. But because 
they were mixing the two and it was not deliberate but because they were mixing the two they were undergoing a great deal of stress because they couldn't for good reason they couldn't articulate sin mm-hmm. beyond a broken commitment which is not exactly the same thing as like slander right right Matthew 18 is very helpful because it tells us how to maintain relationships. And so it's very helpful. It is what you're supposed to do with sin, with direct sin. And so I have to explain this because it comes up so often. The commandment is to confront sin biblically because our tendency is to avoid as long as we can. And only insofar as it injures us do we attack it. And most often we gossip about it instead of actually just straight up attacking it. So first and foremost, Matthew 18 is a charge to the church to deal with sin. You don't get a pass because, oh, I really like them. They're really sweet. Oh, sorry, sin is sin. If you see it, you have to confront it. That's the the first and the most basic principle of Matthew 18. There is a how, though, that does apply. Yes. And so... With this broken commitment, not sin. They're they're standing before God as unchanged. They're not if, if they if they go broken commitment, broken commitment, broken commitment, their life is going to reap that benefit. They are sowing that fruit. And the how of Matthew 18 applies, but the why is different. And so the the how of so Matthew 18 is actually you the whole point of Matthew 18 is preservation of fellowship and relationship. And you cannot have fellowship if there is sin. You absolutely cannot. However, when there is hurt feeling apart from sin, Claire didn't mean to slander me. She was, uh, this didn't happen. This is completely facetious. Claire doesn't mean to slander me. She's talking to somebody else. She has a slip of the tongue. It gets back to me. Claire says this. Okay, and then I'm offended. Now, Matthew 18 actually provides a how of, hey, Claire, this got back to me that you said this, and... I really don't like you saying that. And Claire, because she actually is a caring person who wants our relationship to continue, is going to say, I'm very sorry. Please forgive me. I meant to say this instead. No problem. But if she instead said, screw you, hippie, I can say whatever I want, there's a new offense. And now, mm-hmm. and Matthew 18. Or even attempting to deny it. Yeah. And now we have sin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is very helpful with corporate relationships, business. This actually still applies, even though it's not sin. So, uh, I actually applied this in my job. I had I was working for a um, for a man who was a very good carpenter, and I heard him talking to somebody else, uh, and they were making a joke. Oh, you know, Daniel. He's uh, I don't remember the comment. It was something along the lines of "You can't really count on him." Oh, ha ha ha! And that was pretty frustrating for me. That, that really frustrating. And so I let a couple of days go by, and I could not move past it because forgiveness is allowable. You can forgive an offense, and this was one I wasn't able to forgive. So eventually I confronted him and said, hey, I did not like when you said this to that guy. If you have a problem with my work, I need you to talk to me first. And I actually said it that directly to my boss who could fire me and said, I can't work in an environment where I'm hearing from secondhand that you don't yeah. like the way that I'm doing this. Yeah. And, I, and I definitely don't want to overhear you badmouth me to somebody else. That's not how this is going to go because I don't do that to you. I, I'm, I'm upholding. And he, a Christian, recognized the injustice, apologized, and our relationship was repaired. So I do say that you can apply the Matthew 18 apart from sin. <laughs> but this is a really good distinction. Well, here, here's an important point. If you're doing a campaign, you get to the end of it, and now we're all standing around Matthew 18ing each other, which, <laughs> by the way, I have seen that happen. Sure. Yes, it happened in our group. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it needs to be about real sin. Yeah. And not about doing all the loud, petty. Yeah. And, and not about petty stuff. But it also needs to be like, hey, this is how we need to improve. Our machine can improve. 
and it can always improve. Doesn't matter how good we did. Yeah. We can win the campaign. We can go and slap each other on the back, but we still have to sit down and go, okay, if we run another campaign, what are we going to improve on? Yeah. In fact, when you win, you need to do it doubly because yeah. you get comfortable. Yeah. And that's a really good distinction. Matthew 18 does not apply to the self-criticism of the of the campaign. This is something where you would go corporately with everyone that was there and say, okay, Claire, this is where you fell down. Jared, this is where you fell down. We'd start with Daniel, this is where I fell down. But that's not Matthew 18, and it doesn't really apply there. But Matthew 18 does apply with personal offense, with br- breakdowns on a personal relationship. Yeah, yes. and, and when I say, and, and I feel strongly enough about this because I've seen it done so badly and misapplied <laughs> so many times in my life. When I, when I run up against people that are treating um, incompetence as sin, yeah. then there needs to be a negligence element. And the negligence is you are driving a car and you're doing something that is negligent. You're doing something that you know is unsafe and that's why you got in an accident. As opposed to you're driving a car, you didn't put washer fluid in before you got in the car. You're in like, sin. You're in, you're in sin. Well, no, but it would have been better if you put the washer fluid in the car. It would have been better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you were texting and you were uh, had also drunk and, and uh, like these are different things. You have to recognize the difference between the two. And I think a lot of people mm. who are especially starting off in campaigns, they take every criticism as if they're being confronted over sin. Uh-huh. And then you also run up against people that are firebrands and they're either checked out or everything's a sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> and it's like zero to 60. It's like, bro, this is in the middle. Yeah. The, the the story you told about the guy that ran a banquet ball and said, all right, only two things. He was trying to control all criticism. Yes. And everyone knows why. Because it was an utter disaster. Yeah. yeah. Worst, an, on, worst it, in history. It was a worst. And it, the reason it was a disaster was because he never took criticism on the lead up to that banquet ball. He well, had never established a pattern of taking criticism and improving himself on the way there. And he wound up getting the banquet ball job and he had never established a pattern in his life. Of taking that criticism. Or responsibility. He offered criticism all day long, but he never <laughs> took it. Now, cadres. Okay. So I cannot talk enough about cadres. This is a, this is a, I'm going to say some things and I'm, I'm going to expect some profuse agreement from Claire. <laughs> Ooh. The importance of cadres. Most small groups, life groups, Bible studies, etc., fail to capture the, the dynamic magnetism of a functioning underlined cadre. So most small groups, Bible studies, life groups, whatever you want to call them, doing life together, they're usually, you meet in somebody's house, sometimes it's the pastor's house, you watch a video and then you read a book and then you read some passages from scripture, not always attached to, the, to what you read, and then you talk for like 45 minutes about your feelings on the subject. And then you break up and maybe you hang out and eat some snacks, maybe you go home, but that's it. And then the next week you do it again. Yep. Not only is a cadre a gathering of friends, and this is, a, this is actually, I'm drawing from several sources on when I say friends, I'm drawing from biblically, the disciples were friends. I'm drawing from the fact that the 500 that followed Jesus knew each other, but I'm also referring to the book Axioms by Bill Heibel. It's a, it's a gathering of friends where deep, meaningful fellowship can occur. The life group that I just described cannot happen because you've got a time commitment, because you don't know everyone that's going there, because the topic is kind of shallow you can't get into claire how are you doing in your relationship with james and fighting against thoughts of adultery 
Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, and you know, I wouldn't necessarily have that conversation with you because you know, guy, girl. But Jared, okay, let's talk about, let's get real here. Yeah. Some men's groups can do this. I assume that women's groups can as well, and I've heard that they do. However, this is not a cadre necessarily, because there's also um, not only are the members in all, uh, in almost one mind. This is very important for a cadre if you're campaigning. Everyone is going the exact same direction. Everyone is working towards the same goal. And there might be some difference of opinion on some small matters. This is again the Calvinists and the Arminians. Oh man, they love to attack each other. Mostly, you know, mostly maybe I only have Calvinist friends because I only hear <laughs> I only hear them attacking the Arminians. The Arminians are kind of like whatever, bro. <laughs> but. When you're joined in a campaign, yes, there are some differences of opinion, but you should all be in one accord. This is, again, scripture. They all met, and they were in one accord. Uh, But they are also deepening their friendships and practicing valuable skills. And, I mean, I want to punch each point, but they are also achieving valuable results. They are making real and important changes and contributions. And this is the wholehearted agreement that I'm looking for, Claire. I cannot remember a more exciting time in my life than when I was a part of a functioning cadre. Hmm. Can I get a hell yeah? Hell to the yeah. Okay, why hell yeah? Why? Hell to the yeah. <laughs> How many cadres have you been a part of? At, At least, least one. one. At least one. <laughs> At least one. Definitely black ops. I've been a part of a couple. So the Black Ops leader and I've, I've been a part of several, but Black Ops is the one that stands out most to me and was the most valuable and was the first. Valuable skills. Practicing valuable skills. A cadre ought to be sharpening their skills towards the campaign. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the exciting things about a cadre is you actually get to practice. Yeah. And th- this is a frustration that I have with Bible school. We practiced a whole bunch. Oh, man, we got so good at practicing. But there was no practical application. Got it in one. Yep. And then you went home and you're like, cool. I learned all this stuff at Bible school. The people that I was really excited to do it with have just dispersed to the four winds. Yeah. Now I have to build a cadre here, I guess, and do what we practiced. And that's where it falls down. Or just forget all about it. And that's what actually, that's what Jared did. Jared came to Yakima and he started a cadre. Yeah. And he started putting into practice the things that he had practiced practicing for a number of years. And it was rough at first. But he did, in fact, do that. So, I mean, kudos to Jared. You you broke the fo- you broke the norm there. But this is one area that the church fails to equip its saints, which is one of the jobs that, it, that is scripturally dictated to the church to do: equipping the saints for every good work. Bam, bam, bam. Sorry, his so, bam is more powerful. Than but <laughs> they also make meaningful contributions, and this is a big part. Your cadre should be formed of people who are pressing into salvation and who are excited about the goal. And this is one of the really nice things that the communists do. They get rid of the people who aren't excited about the goal. They don't make it into the cadres. They aren't interested. And so you winnow away. Yeah, the- they're not trying to hold on to someone that doesn't really want to be there. They're like, okay, bye. Go, 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 go. Shoo, shoo. And this is what Christ repeatedly did. Hey, Jesus, we want the free bread. And Jesus said, actually, if you want the free bread, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. And people are like, oh, <laughs> okay. Okay, I didn't know it was that kind of party. I, I got to go. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, do you want to go as well? And I get that there's a little bit of a challenge there. And he's like, well, you're going to keep following me or peace out? And Peter says, where are we going to go? No one else has the words of eternal life. Who else has the words of eternal life? So my point is there does need to be a little bit of a winnowing here. I mean, there's a lot here. The 
each person has an important contribution. So that it's not only that they're making important changes in the world, they're actually, each of their contributions is valuable. So Bill Hybels says, we got to do this, and more importantly, we got to do it as friends, is what he talks about it with this principle. There's the idea that you should be friends with the people that you're fellowshipping with, which seems horribly basic, but it's just not done. I mean, I can't get away from Why Men Hate Going to Church and Axioms of Leadership by Bill Hybels. The way that men form relationships is by doing things important, by working. And women are actually very, very fluid. Women tend to form relationships by sitting around a circle and talking. And and David Murrow makes the point that most life groups and small groups try the feminine method of creating friendships, which is sitting around and talking and talking and talking and talking. And women can thrive there, but here's the interesting thing. Women can also thrive in the same way that men do. Women are very much more adaptable. They're actually created to adapt to their husband Mm -hmm. and to become the helpmate that he needs. This is a really cool and fascinating thing, which we don't have time to to talk about. But my point is that the way churches do small groups suck ass. The whole point of the cadres that that Bill Hybels, not Bill Hybels, (laughs) Douglas Hyde, he talks about the self-improvement inherent in the cadre. And this is really, really valuable. And I wrote down, one of the most overlooked values of a well-functioning cadre is the emphasis and opportunity for self-improvement through the Matthew 18 process. Mm -hmm. The way that men and some women form relationships is in the doing, is in the work side by side, and that provides an opportunity for criticism without being critical. Oh, hey, hold on. Uh, you know, you're you're not quite get- so I like to I like to talk about digging because there's a finesse and a technique to it. And when you're working in the hot hot sun, you learn really really quickly, is this guy going to quit? Is this girl reliable? Is this can this person work hard? And so in a campaign where you're actually moving towards a goal, you have the ability to self-improve. And, and this is what we ought to do in Christ. And this is part of the Matthew 18 process, which is our sins rub up against each other. This is actually one of the things that marriage does really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> it brings up all of your really, really rough spots, and it highlights Magnifies them. Magnifies them. <laughs> and you can shy away from criticism on those rough spots. Men do it through tyranny or through neglect. I don't know how women hide their defects and how they, in some cases, they just go into rebellion and refuse to submit. Well, you know, I get to do this. But cadres have the ability to have that same refining process. Proverbs says that as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens his friend. Anyway, so my point is the campaigns allow us not only to take over the world and to create healthier churches, they also allow us to create healthier Christians. Mm -hmm. And so there's that personal element to cadres, which is often overlooked, especially by me. There is the opportunity to actually get in the face of people and say, okay, as it turns out, you're kind of a jerk. Mm -hmm. And you veer into sin when you do X, Y, Z. And that's one of the nice things about work is it actually allows whatever's there to come to the top and come to the surface. And so, hey, you're kind of lazy. Not a sin. It's just really difficult to work with you. (laughs) Good Cadre's work has in the past made a major contribution to the production of the men of special mold, which Stalin said communists should be. Mm -hmm. It is, in fact, that this relatively small minority group a quite disproportionate number of leaders has come. These men are to be found at the top of trade unions, peasant organizations, professional bodies, cultural groups. It is not all done by trickery. When we seek for explanations, we have to look at the training which they have been given, the way in which they have been formed in their study classes, 
and the way in which the party develops them from day to day, uses their ability, draws out their potentialities for self-cultivation and for leadership. And we can admit that all these things the Communist Party does well. When Stalin concerned himself with the development of people, when he tried to impress upon his party leaders that people must be treasured and developed, he had, of course, only a certain section of the people in mind, those in the Communist Party, or who were of direct and immediate use to it, and, as was later shown, who were of immediate use to himself. His humanity was selective. Boy, was it ever. But his slogan, (laughs) cadres decide everything, was not a bad one. There is no reason why other people who are not concerned just to help a minority but with all mankind should not adapt it to their own purposes. Now, this was particularly discouraging for me because what he's talking about when, it, when we talk about a campaign, you have to have a cadre. And if you're going to develop cadres, you really need a pool to draw from. That's mm-hmm. the truth. Yep, true. And in order to get that, you need a community yeah. because you have to have people of a certain paradigm. Trust me, if you, you need people who believe the Bible is true and they're highly concentrated in churches and hard to find outside of them. And then you also need them to not be addicted to defeatism and the self-resignation of soft bones. Yeah. And that meant a brand new community. And what God has been doing in our midst is he's been taking people who just were regular Joe parishioners and completely satisfied. And he has been waking them up in, in the United States of America over the last four years. And I mean baby boomers. And I'll tell you, there was a time I was telling a friend of mine this. There was a time when baby boomers would show up and and Gen Xers and they would basically say, Jared, I have come to help you. And I would say, that's fantastic. I really I need, need you, help. That's, I need you to do X, Y, Z. You need to go and change these things about what you're doing. And I'd be like, <laughs> that's not helpful. Well, uh, you no. don't understand what I'm doing. Yeah. First off. Secondly, the reason why it's not doing the things you think it should do is because you think it should do things I don't want it to do. Then there's a last point that I have to make. And that is, I said, that you don't realize any of these things. You have no intention of, of understanding. Like, you don't intend to understand what I'm doing. You've already got it figured out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so they would show up, then they would drop off their kids. Mm-hmm. And they would say, this is what you need to change. And I would say, that sounds great. Now I'll tell you how I dealt with the boomers at the time and the Gen Xers. I would say, that sounds great. If you could help me run the dances and start donating financially, this is costing me a lot of personal money. It was, it was costing me cash. Yeah. And uh, it's gonna take a lot of time and I need I need help you know, with cleanup and if you could be do this interface and if you could sit on this board. And then they would all run away. And they would be like, oh, well, all of a sudden I'm not concerned about my kids anymore because you're asking me to volunteer so then they all run away. Whereas yeah. if I had like been like, no, screw you, I don't. I do what I want to do, they'd have pulled their kids out and ran away. Yeah. But as it was, they just said, oh, okay, then they ran away. And I remember in particular one, one woman showing up and then trying to instruct me on how to teach aerials. I, I mean, it was so ludicrous. <laughs> she gave me advice that basically would have resulted in the likelihood of someone winding up a paraplegic. And she was like super belligerent about it. It was very obnoxious and 
we get to the end of this big long exchange and uh, I said thank you so much for your feedback and then she left and I found myself kind of walking away shaking my head going how how is this ever going to work how am I ever going to get anywhere in this but we just kept plugging away and plugging away and God was you know, moving on people who who were maturing in a different place, like Dan had already matured in a different, completely different stream before he showed up, yeah. and uh, and and all these people that were still being brought in, and then the last four years, those same boomers, the same mentality. I know it. You you meet them, and and they all have certain traits about them, and now they're sitting there going, "How do we campaign?" How do we build cadres? How do we create communication systems? How do we do all this stuff? Said, well, I, I did it already. And, and I'm like, uh, <laughs> I did it wrong a lot. You could ask me. Mm-hmm. So well. I, you know, I really want to speak to the audience about this. There was a time when I looked at ca- this cadres bit, and it's talking about development and education and on and on. And I'm sure Dan's. I know that Dan's probably has some things to say around this, but, but one of the things that's true about the education element is it was very time consuming. It was very time consuming to run small groups and to pitch them to people who in America have a glut of entertainment, a glut of distraction. And to compete with that was really hard work, especially now in this day and age where people have lost the capacity to even sit and read a book and to have that kind of, of interaction with people, it took God moving. And what I want to say to the audience as it relates to this chapter, which is my favorite chapter, God is on the move. Aslan is on the move. <laughs> and he's moving in America in ways I, I never thought I would see. I'm so cynical. We're seeing the second great awakening right now under our noses. But we have to strike we have to move. We have to engage. We can't spend our lives anymore in this constant preparation and no actual engagement. Mm-hmm. We have to play this game. And that's why this podcast even exists. I would never waste time on a podcast like this. I would never have wasted time on a podcast like this five years ago. I promise you that. Because this is only valuable to people who are looking. Yeah. Yes. You're looking for the disgruntled few. The people who are disgruntled with the way things are and they're looking for a change. On cadres, I do have to acknowledge that we've all been there. We've all attempted to train people to lead cadres and we've all made mistakes in choices of human material. We've all made mistakes in getting things correctly assessed. And and so that happens. And there were some catastrophic small groups. When I say catastrophic, they are also forgettable. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it turns out that we learned from our mistakes and nobody else remembered them. Yeah, it's, it's very nice. And that's one of my huge hills to overcome in small in leading small groups. I had to learn that failure means nothing. It's like Kipling said, success and failure are both frauds. And I did not understand that. And so we as a body of Christ, we as campaigners for Christendom, crusaders, I like that better actually, we as crusaders for Christendom have to stop being afraid of failure. And I include myself in that because I was so afraid of failure for so long that I refused to do anything. Or I would do small, little, tiny things that I knew I could win at, which is very helpful for to morale. <laughs> yeah, that is helpful. It's very helpful to morale. It just doesn't achieve any long-term goals. And so we as a body of Christ have to stop being afraid of failing. 
Failure means nothing. Christ died for us. We are going to heaven. And it is very, very possible that all of our efforts will come to nothing. It's very, very possible that in the next five years, Jesus will come down, he will descend from heaven on a white horse, and the question will be moot. It is very possible. It's also possible that we might be here a while, and our children's children's children might benefit from us working hard and getting things done now. Both of those are possible. There's the parable of the, of the servant. He didn't know when his master would come home, and so he got lazy and he started to beat the others. We can be like that lazy servant. We can be like that those five virgins who did not bring extra oil because they didn't know how long they were going to be waiting. Or we could be like the five wise virgins who said, you know what, I don't know how long this is going to take, so I'm going to pack extra. That's my entire point. We need to be crusading as though the next 500 years were very, very important. I did want to say this, though. The baby boomers that came in weren't saying, oh, Jared, you need to fix this, this, and this. Unfortunately, if they had just kept their remarks to that, that would have been valuable. What they said was, Jared, you're doing it wrong. The way that you get, you're, you're too brash. You're too angry. You need to calm down. No, they probably didn't say you need to calm down. You're not nice enough. You're just not nice enough, Jared. You don't know enough about X, Y, Z. And that's all that is, is being critical. Yes. So this girl who told you how to teach aerials, you're doing it wrong. You need to blah, 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 blah. Oh, shut up. Hmm. That's one thing I've had to learn to speak up for myself lately is dealing with critical is, uh, you know, if you see that I need something or if you think I should be doing something, step in and help. Don't tell me I should be doing this. If you see there's a need, fucking fill it. Well, on that bombshell, um, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and wrap up. I'm going to pray. And um, dear Jesus, he knows you'll have would you please continue to move in America and continue to make yourself known? And thank you so much. I am having a blast. Thank you so much for putting me in this day and age. I am so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we hit the stop button? Right that again? We're super sweary tonight. Yeah. I love swearing. <laughs> this profanity was brought to you by Elijah Craig Small Batch Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Wow. Swear like a sailor, drink like a gentleman. Mm. <laughs>